You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you'd remain standing this morning, turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, yeah, we're, we've got less pages ahead of us than we have behind us. Uh, when we started this series, I don't know, three or four years ago, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be funny, but it's okay, you can laugh, it's all good. <laughs> we started walking into the book of Revelation back before the first of the year, um, been anticipating these chapters. I've said that every week, right? Every chapter we've been in, I've been anticipating it, well, here we are, and we're going to talk about heaven this morning, the eternal state of all those who follow Jesus. So pick it up in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will Dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake, of, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father, We thank you for the clarity and the beauty of your word. We know that it is inspired. We know there are no errors in it. We know, Father, that it is our authority. We also know, Father, that it it points the way, the only way that can bring life, the only way that we can escape the second death, the only way that we can be with you forever. It points us in that direction. And so, Father, we recognize this morning that your word is powerful, it describes itself as a sharper, sharp two-edged sword that, that can cut away the things that need to be cut out of our life. Father, we recognize that it has the power to change a life from the inside out. But Father, we also recognize that none of us in this room have the power to change a heart. All we can do is proclaim the truth. All we can do is to love others the way you have loved us forgive others the way you have forgiven us, to live out and model for the rest of this world what it means to follow you by faith. But Father, the change of the heart, the drawing of the heart to your side, that is a work that only you can do. So Father, we know what our responsibility is and we know what your responsibility is. And Father, we know that your word, when it is proclaimed, will have its effect. So Father, we trust in your word. We trust in the Holy Spirit that is here this morning. And Father, we trust that that he is speaking to hearts, and even now, drawing those far from you back home. 
So thank you, Father, for your presence and power here. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Christ the righteous. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You may be familiar and maybe be a, you might be a fan of uh, Stephen King. Uh, he is a prolific writer. He's, wrote, he's written 73 books, many of them that have went on to be movies. Beyond that, he's written 200 short stories. And if you're a fan of his, you know that his genre is more of the horror, thriller type writing. His movies have sold millions and millions of dollars as well as, as, well as his books. And so I thought it was very interesting that, that during an interview with a Rolling Stone reporter back in 2014, he was asked the question of what he thought about the afterlife. Now, with all that he's written about demons and witches and everything else under the sun, I don't know, I, I would find his perspective rather interesting because for me, does he, does he really believe that there is some kind of spiritual world or is he just using those stories as an opportunity to write books, sell movies, and, well, put a lot of money in his bank account? So in 2014, during an interview with Rolling Stone, he was asked, and I, and I also find it amazing that a Rolling Stone reporter would actually ask this question. They asked Stephen King what he believed about heaven. Now, again, that seems to be a really odd question in a Rolling Stone interview, but I'm glad it was asked because I was interested in what his answer would be. I want you to hear his answer. He says, quote, I don't want to go to the heaven that I learned about when I was a kid. To me, it seems rather boring. The idea that you're going to lounge around on a cloud all day and listen to guys play harps, he says, I don't want to listen to harps. He said, I would rather listen to Jerry Lee Lewis, end quote. And so you think of that, and you know, at first you're kind of like, kind of put off by that. But let's unpack a little bit about what he's saying here. He has a perception of heaven that he learned as a kid and that in his adult life, as he's now able to reason through what all he heard as a kid, and he's come to the conclusion that if, if heaven is sitting around in white robes, playing harps, sitting on a cloud, get this, for all eternity, well, you may be shocked by this, but I actually kind of agree with Stephen King here. I, it sounds rather boring to me. I'm just, I'm sorry if I've offended you already, that I'm glad we got that out of the way at the beginning because more than likely I'm going to offend you again. But the fact is that if I'm looking at an eternity of playing a harp, folks, I don't have any harp music on any of my playlists right now on Amazon Prime. You'll not find any, any harp music in my car and so where does these perceptions come from? Where, where, do, where do they come from that we're going to be playing harps? And, and then here's another one that, and again, I might as well get this out of the way now. The, the idea that when we, when we go to heaven or we get to that place in Christ's kingdom, that somewhere along that journey we're going to be receiving our angels' wings. I'm going to answer that question for you this morning. We have some pretty messed up perceptions about what this eternal state is going to be like. And what's interesting is, is that our misconceptions about it are, are not in Scripture per se, but, but yet we have some things in Scripture that tell us clearly what this, this eternal state is going to be like, and yet we, we stick to our old tropes of things we saw in comic books and uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons, that's my age uh, speaking there, uh, and, and other things that we've seen in movies. And, and honestly, most of the time in movies when heaven is depicted, it's not even close to what the Scripture says. So no wonder people are 
like wondering, do I really, do I really want to be part of that? I read a, uh, I read a report of a, of a guy who's a Christian apologist. He's a guy who defends the faith, and he, he went into a college class of 20-somethings. And he asked this question. He said to the, these 20-somethings, I think everyone in the room was less than 25 years old, he asked the question, he says, if you knew you only had three days left to live, that three days from now your life's going to come to an end, what, how are you going to spend these next three days? I'll ask you the same question. How would you spend these next three days? Well, some of the answers that he got was fairly predictable. Well, I, I want to go skydive. I've always wanted to go skydiving, so in these last three days, I'm going to go skydiving. And, and someone else said, well, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go on a trip to maybe to Europe or somewhere I've never been, and I'm going to spend those three days traveling. And another guy said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take and empty all the money out of my account. I'm going to spend all the money on, well, quite frankly, loose living. That was his answer. But I want you to think about the answers, and I want you to think about the answers you've got in your head right now. How are we looking at those last three days of life on this planet if our three days are spent living it up? What are we thinking in those three days? I'll tell you what you're thinking. The same thing a lot of people are thinking. But those last three days are the last three days you've got to have all the fun you can because after that, well, it's a harp on a cloud with a white gown in heaven, right? I mean, maybe we haven't thought about it this way, but if, if our days are numbered out and we knew what those numbers were, if we knew exactly how many days we've got left, we would probably, and I'm guilty as you are on this, I would probably live those days out for myself. But I wonder if underlying all of that is this idea that heaven's going to be boring and I might as well get all my fun in now because when I get there, man, it's just going to be dry. It's going to be like one long perpetual church service where we're perpetually late for something else, right? It's going to be the longest worship service of your life. I wonder, I wonder if maybe that's the perception you have. Well, if it is, I want to blow that up this morning, just quite frankly. I want to just blow that completely out of the water because what we have in Scripture is so much better than what we're learning through our culture about this place. Would, would it surprise us that the forces of darkness would want us to see heaven as a boring, dry place that no one really wants to go. When at the same time, all through the New Testament, Paul would write and John would write and Peter would write that we are to keep our focus on the end, that we're to keep our focus on crossing the finish line and being with our Creator forever. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it make sense that those who oppose God and those who oppose Christ would want to plant an image in our mind that is exactly the opposite of what Scripture says it's going to be like? I would say that's exactly what happens. And unfortunately, far too many of us have bought the culture's idea of what this is going to be like rather than what Scripture says. So last week, we saw the end of all opposition to God. We saw Satan being cast into this lake of fire, and we, we talked even then about what is it going to be like during that thousand-year millennial reign when there is no more temptation, no more brokenness, that for a period of time the curse is going to be lifted and and we get to reign with Christ. What is that going to be like? And then we saw last week where all those who followed Satan, all those who opposed God, are now going to be judged, and they are going to come to their, well, their final judgment. Not that they will cease to exist, but that they will exist for all eternity in a place far removed from God and from His grace and from His love in a place of, of awful torment. And so when we think about heaven, we think about golden streets, we think about pearly gates, we think about 
those many layers of foundations of precious stones. We get caught up in all this imagery. And God gave us some of this imagery, but he never gave us this imagery for us to get caught up in all of those things. Although they're important, they're not the most important. I'll give you an example of how sometimes we get caught up with the golden streets and the pearly gates and the walls around the city more than the God and the Christ who will be there that we'll get to live for and live with for all eternity. When you go up uh, through my hometown, if you're making a trip up to the mountains, you'll, you'll pass through uh, North Wilkesboro, Wilkesboro there on Highway 421. And then you'll start, eventually you'll start making your way up the mountains. You can see the mountains, but eventually you start making your way up this four lane right up the middle of the mountains there. And, and right when you crest the mountain, it's a place called Deep Gap. There is, there is this, uh, this bridge that goes over 421, and it's the Blue Ridge Parkway. If you're not familiar with the Blue Ridge Parkway, it's this long series of, of road where you can see some incredible views of the mountains. And, and my family and I, we love to go up there. I love to go up there and hike. But when you come up to Deep Gap, you have the option to continue to go on into Boone or Appalachian State University, that area, or you can, you can exit off and get on the parkway, and you can drive over the parkway and see all the sights. Well, right there on that road is this big sign. I think it's when you come off of 421 on the exit. There's this big sign that says, Welcome to the Blue Ridge Parkway. And it has an artist rendering of the mountains in the background. So it's kind of like a welcome. Here's where you are. You're, you're getting on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Well, what if, what if you drove the four hours it takes from here to get there, and, and you get on the, you've been anticipating seeing the mountains. You've been anticipating maybe seeing all the beauty. You, you pull off a 421 and you get your family in front of this sign that says, Welcome to the Blue Ridge Parkway. And you take a picture of your family and you, you post it on social media. You get in your car and drive back to Lumberton and tell all your friends that you saw the parkway, you saw the mountains. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, you would never do that. You didn't see the parkway, you saw the sign that depicts the parkway. Well, just as equally as ridiculous as that is, when we get caught up on the pearly gates and we get caught up on the golden streets and we get caught up in all these things that God graciously gave us as descriptions of what this place is going to be like, when we get focused on that besides the Creator who's given us the opportunity to be in that place, you're looking at a sign, you're not seeing the reality. So my goal this morning is to blow up some preconceptions of ideas that we've learned along the way but also to get our focus off the sign that points to our Creator. And let's look at our Creator. Let's look at the sovereign God who we get to dwell in His presence. So what is this place going to be like? Am I going to need to take some harp lessons and learn to like it? Um, am I going to be sitting around on a cloud? Or, hey, do I get up there and I finally get my angel's wings? Well, we're going to deal with some of that this morning. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now, the interesting thing about when we talk about terms, we talked about this last week. We talked about Hades. We talked about hell. We talked about lake of fire. And sometimes we, we encapsulate all those into the term that we use as hell. Well, equally so, when we talk about heaven, sometimes we get some of the terms mixed up and we just call everything heaven. So let me, let me break some of this down just like I did last week. So in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, and in the Old, but predominantly in the New Testament, when the writers talk about heaven, there's three possible definitions for the term heaven, depending on the context of the Scripture. Number one, the sky, our, our atmosphere around the planet. There are, are times that the psalmist talks about the sky. There's times that Paul talks about the immediate sky, and he calls it heaven. The second possibility is when the Bible describes the cosmos, the stars. So 
when you walk out at night and you look up in a clear sky, you see the moon, the stars, you see all the planets, the Bible often refers to that as heaven. Not necessarily where God dwells, but just that the cosmos is described as that place called heaven. But then there's the third one that we often refer to the most. And, and when we talk about heaven, we're talking about the very presence, the very throne room of God where God dwells. So these are the three ways that the word heaven is used. But the interesting thing we find in chapter 21, verse 1, is that the place that your loved ones have gone to now, that we call heaven right now, get this, it's only temporary, interestingly enough. The place that they're in now and all of its beauty and all of its peace and all of its joy and and remember, we said that to be separate from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, in that place, yes, we can call that heaven because that's where God dwells. But notice this, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So there's going to be a new planet, there's going to be a, a new atmosphere, there's going to be a new cosmos, and get this, there's going to be a new dwelling that God is going to enjoy with his people. He is going to make all things new. Now, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, you don't have to turn over there, but I'm just going to reference it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says that the earth and the heavens is going to burn with a fervent heat. It's going to be destroyed. So at this point, we have to ask the question, why is that? Well, this earth, this cosmos, everything that we see in this planet has been cursed with sin. It, if you go back to the fall and you look at what happened there, God not only curses Adam and Eve, he also curses the serpent, but also he curses the planet itself. Paul says in Romans 8 that the world, our planet, groans in pain. And that the brokenness in this world is going to be completely and utterly done away with. Now, during that thousand-year millennial reign, we'll have a time where we'll be able to live on this planet without the effect of the curse. But God, in his sovereignty, has decided that he's going to do away with the old earth, and he's going to create a new one. Why? Well, there's nothing on this planet will ever be carried over into that eternal state? Why is he creating a new heaven? Just because God can and he wants to. But he's going to give his people a brand new dwelling place, a brand new place to dwell with him. All the negatives of the first existence are going to go away, and everything going forward is going to be brand new. I don't know about you, but I like new stuff. When stuff is new, you get the new car, you like the new car. But after a while, the new car begins to be treated like the old car, and you're not washing it every day. You're washing it about once a week and then once a month. And then the only time it gets washed is this morning when it rains. There's something about new, new stuff that eventually just kind of gets old again. But in this new place, in this new cosmos, in this new planet, everything will be perpetually new forever. I'm going to like that. That sounds really wonderful. Let's move on to verse 2. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this, this new heaven is going, to be, is, going to, is going to be coming down and dwelling among mankind. And this new planet, this new earth, apparently is going to be created in such a way that it can sustain this city because next week you're going to hear more about this new city. This new city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and here's the mind-blowing one, 1,500 miles tall. How in the world? Well, there's nothing right now in our cosmos that even comes close to that. Yes, we have massive planets, but on this planet, think of Mount Everest. I mean, think of how big it is. This city, this city is going to dwarf the largest mountains upon this planet. And John sees it come down out of heaven and is going to be upon this new earth. Why is that? Well, we're going to find out that God 
desires to be with his people. So the first aspect of this new heaven and this new earth is we will enjoy the newness of it all. It'll all be brand new. I don't know what the the days are going to look like. I don't know what that's going to look like. We have some things in these closing chapters that tell us a little bit about what it's going to be like. All I can tell you is there is nothing in your imagination that can prepare you for what God is going to do. It has not even entered the heart of man or even come into our conscience the things that God is going to be able to do. John even has a hard time writing this down. So whatever, whatever context you try to, to build an, an illustration in your mind of what this is going to be, it's like a drop in the, of water in the ocean compared to what God is actually going to accomplish here. So we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. The second thing, verse 3, we will live in complete communion with God. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, here's a question that would be raised at this point. Is this the opportunity, finally the place by which we can actually see God? Is this the point in our future where we can actually not only be with God, but actually see Him and commune with Him? The answer to that question is an absolute positive yes. As sane as it sounds, as all we know from the Old Testament, knowing that, that God went to great lengths to keep himself separate from humanity, that even now in this church age in which we live, that oftentimes I'll get this, if God will just show himself, if God will show up, and my answer to that is, you can't handle that. There, there's no way you can handle the majesty, the beauty, the power of a God who spoke you into existence and spoke the cosmos. You can't handle that. Your body couldn't handle it. I've often thought that if by some chance in this body I could see God, my body would just melt. I would just explode. There's no way. Moses, a faithful follower of God, even Moses was not allowed to see anything but the backside of God. And when he did, it changed who he was. He didn't even look the same. He had to veil his face because when he would walk around, his face was glowing so brightly, no one could stand it. I would imagine that it almost killed Moses just seeing the backside of God. And so here at this point, we have a brand new body and a brand new place. And yes, we will be able to commune with God, just like Adam and Eve did before the fall. Notice that word dwelling place and the word dwell after it. It has the word uh, tabernacle behind it. The Greek word behind it points us to this Old Testament term called the tabernacle. If you remember in the Old Testament, in Exodus uh, chapters 33, 34, 35 and following, God gives Moses all these details about building something called a tabernacle. Now, when you read through the Bible in a year, you probably skip over those really quickly because it gets a little laborious reading all this stuff about curtains and rings and rods and stakes and the Ark of the Covenant and how it's supposed to be designed. And that all these curtains were to, to make an outer courtyard of, a, of basically a portable temple as the Israelites would wander around in the wilderness as they were his people called apart out of Egypt. So, so they would build this outer curtain. Inside there would be this, this tent. There would be a front room in the tent and a back room in the tent. And, and separating those two rooms was this large curtain. And behind that curtain was described as the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is basically a gold box. On top of it is the depiction of two angels with wings stretched over the top of that box. 
that box represented the very presence of God. Not only did it represent it, but, but God's presence, the very, the very Shekinah glory that, God, that the Bible describes, the very presence of God was in that place. Not that the temple held God, not that the curtain held God back, but just that there was a separation between humanity and God and basically saying that humanity, you are not like me and I am not like you, so you need to keep your distance. And also humanity, you need to understand that you're broken. And, and while the sacrifices provide an opportunity for us to be in a fellowship, your sins have not been completely atoned for by that lamb that you sacrificed. There's, there's one coming, my son, who will come. So for now, in this age, you keep your distance. And inside that tabernacle, only the high priest and only at the right time of the year and only with the right preparations could he walk behind that curtain into the very presence of God. If he walked back there at the wrong time, if he walked back there and didn't make the right preparations, if he went back there and did not have blood sacrifice ready to pour on the top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, if he went back there with the wrong attitude, if he went back there without taking a bath, if he went back there with all these things, if he didn't have his garments clean, if he went back there and broke the law in any way, that man would drop dead in that place instantly. It's because this God is not like us. We're not to rush into his presence. And in the Old Testament, there was separation. Later, when Solomon would build the temple, he would build that temple based off of the instructions given for the tabernacle. And inside that temple would be a most holy place with a curtain that would go from the ceiling to the floor. And that curtain would be 18 inches thick that separated God from the rest of the world. So God says over and over again, keep your distance. It says here that God's dwelling place, his tabernacle will be with man. He will tabernacle with them. This idea of God being with his people, not only did it start in the Old Testament with God calling Abraham, but when Jesus is dying on a cross, when he is, he is living his last moments of life on this planet, fulfilling what God had called him to do, at the moment he dies, inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the temple, inside that holy place where that curtain was hanging some 40 feet long from the ceiling to the floor, when Jesus died, that thick, heavy canvas curtain that was 18 inches thick was torn from the top to the bottom in Matthew's account. It's as though God took his hands. It's as though, as though God reached into the temple, takes that curtain, and rips it from the top to the bottom, opening up the most holy place. And for the first time in history, God says to humanity, all that will come, come and be in my presence. All who will come through my son who paid the price for your sins, all who will come, let them come. And God says to the world, now, I want you to come. I want you to dwell with me. But even in this age in which we live, we still don't have the tangible, visible God in front of us. But in this day, in this moment, he will tabernacle with us, not like he did in the Old Testament. That was a foreshadowing of this. God, his very presence, will be seen and experienced. We will live in complete communion with God, just like Adam and Eve had in the garden before it all went south. Not only will we enjoy a new heaven and a new earth, not only will we live in complete communion with God, look at verse 4, we will live life to the fullest without the effects of the sin and curse, of the, of the curse and sin. Verse 4, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. There are five things that, that God reveals to John that will not be there in that place. The first thing we see is that tears will be wiped away, and it begs the question, if in the context of which chapter 21 is written, right off of the, right off of the event of the great white throne judgment, the question has been asked, well, during that great white throne judgment, when we see these millions of people that have rejected Christ and rejected the truth being cast off into the lake of fire. If we are there and we witness this, those who are following Christ, those who are in the eternal state, is that not going to be a heartbreaking moment? And I would say yes. And I have to wonder if, if, if tears are not going to well up in our eyes at that moment, even though we have a new body, even though we're with Christ, even though all the promises are being fulfilled, I wonder if in that moment, in that brief moment, that we're not going to be broken over what we just saw. I, I would imagine that part of being an image bearer, the Imago Dei, that we bear the image of God, that just as much as God's heart's going to be broken in that moment, so will we. But then, the new heaven, the new earth, the city of Jerusalem, this new city descending, and it's as though Christ reached out with his finger and wipes the tears from our eyes because the old things are now passing away. He says... He says he will wipe away every tear. The second thing he says is that death will be no more. I will never have to stand with a spouse of a loved one. Where they've been married for 30, 40, 50, 60, and I've even had couples that have been married 70 years. I will never have to stand and look at that spouse that's now been left behind, where they've spent their life together all these years doing the same routine every morning loving each other all through the hard stuff, raising kids and grandkids and even great-grandkids, that this spouse, his or her life, everything about their schedule, everything about their day-to-day -day routine, everything that they did was about this other person because the Bible says that when we're married, we become one, one. And in that moment of death, that oneness now becomes two again. And there's some period of life that this spouse is going to have to live out before he or she makes that transition into that place where their loved one is, and I have to look at them, and they're looking at me, and they're saying, I don't know how I'm, I'm going to go back home. I don't know how I'm going to walk in my house. I don't know how I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and fix breakfast the way I've been fixing breakfast for the last 50 years when I look across the table and that person's not there. How am I going to do this? And with tears streaming down my face at the same time, I have to look at them and I go, I don't know, but I know this. That Christ is going to give you what you need step by step, moment by moment, and he is going to help you to heal your heart. But other than that, all I know to do is mourn with you. Folks, I am happy to say, I am thrilled to say that at that point, I will never, ever, ever have to officiate another funeral ever for all eternity. There will never be any more separation. There will never be any more of the heartbreak. Notice what else he says. He says he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no tears. There'll be no death there. Neither shall there be mourning. There'll be no broken hearts, no more sorrow. Get this. If you've struggled with depression and anxiety, it will all be left outside of this place. There'll be no place worth there. There'll be no reason to be down. There'll be no more bad days. There'll be no more heartache or heartbrokenness. None of that will be in this place, no tears, no death, 
No mourning. Look at this. He says, nor crying. There'll be no more tears shed. There'll be no more crying. Look at this. He says, there'll be no more pain. No more physical pain. No more emotional pain. No more spiritual pain. No more pain of separation. No more pain from anxiety or depression or stuff that happened in your past. All of that is gone. If you work in the medical field, if you're a nurse or a doctor or some type of practitioner within the healthcare field, you are out of a job. If you work at a funeral home, you are out of a job. If you work for pharmaceuticals, you are out of a job. If you are the nurse who puts the IV in, you're out of a job. And praise be to God, I'm out of a job because we won't need a pastor anymore. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but it won't be this. So we're out of a job, folks, and the Lord will have something new for us to do. Why is that? Because the former things have passed away. Everything that we know, everything about this life, this planet, this cosmos, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the, all, all of that is gone. It's gone away. So we will have the opportunity to live life to the fullest. Live life the way we were intended to live. To live life with purpose. And look, that purpose is not streaming some golden harp on a cloud. No, you're going to be doing something that is you're going to absolutely love. And you're going to have an existence in that place that is unlike anything you've got. There's been shadows of it here. There's been there's been little glimpses of what this is going to be like. Those moments in life where you were the absolute happiest. Grooms, let me tell you this. That moment, husbands, let me tell you this. That moment you were a groom and you were standing down front. And, and whether it was a, the justice of the peace or a building like this, the first time you saw your bride when she was preparing to walk down that aisle or, or, or to walk up in front of a judge, wherever that happened, and, and you gave your life to one another and you were overjoyed. You couldn't even put words to it because the love was so real at that moment. That was a little glimpse, just a, just a little, little appetizer, just a little fragment of what it's going to be there for all eternity. Look at verses 5 and 6. We will rest in the promises of God. Verse 5, and he who is seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. I like new things. I really do. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, here it is, it is done. In that three-word sentence, here's what we have. We have the full, utter completion of all that God has ever promised to humanity. Everything that he has promised through the covenants, through everything that he did, everything that was written down for us, everything that Jesus promised, he says, it is now done. All the former things are now gone. Now, everything ahead of us is all brand new. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. That is the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. We start out the Bible. We start out in Genesis 1-1. How? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What do we have? The very first verse, we have God speaking, because Psalm 33 says that when he created the earth, he spoke. When he, when he created the cosmos, he spoke. So in the very first verse of the Bible, we have this, God created, God speaking. So at the very beginning of God's revelation to us, what do we have? We have God speaking. What do we have at the end of all time where we have a new heaven and a new earth? What do we have? We have God speaking, and he is saying, it is done. I am the Alpha. I'm the beginning and the end. Not his beginning, not his end, because he has no beginning and he has no end. He says that all that has encompassed life, 
the life that he has given, all that encompasses that, he is the one that began it, he is the one that ended it, and he's the one that's brought all things to new, a new creation. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, You'll see this next week in the coming verses, but there's this stream of water flowing from from the throne, and it is a life-giving stream to the nations. And he says, if you're thirsty, you need to take a drink of this fountain. He says, he will, it says here that to the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. In other words, the one who conquers will have this heritage. That God will be our God and we will be his sons and daughters. We will rest in the promises of God. God says, John, write this down. This is trustworthy. This is true. These promises are more than just things that God said. These promises are rooted in the very character of God. So God being trustworthy, God being honest, God being righteous, God being perfect, well, he cannot tell a lie and he cannot cause confusion. He cannot say something and do something else. He will do everything that he says he's going to do. So he says to John in these last moments, he says, John, write this down because it's trustworthy and true. It is done. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm everything in between. And it's only in me that people will have life. So we will rest in these promises of God. But finally, we will live forever as God's children. It says here, the one who conquers. You will have this inheritance. That word heritage means inheritance. You're going to inherit all of the promises of God as his his people. But not just as his people, but look at this, as his sons and daughters. An amazing, beautiful incredible thing happened. At the moment we profess faith in Jesus Christ, um, not only are we forgiven, not only are we set free, not only are we made brand new, not only does the new birth occur, but we are adopted as sons and daughters by the creator of the universe. So the whole dynamic between humanity and God changes in an instant that no longer is he a, a righteous judge who's going to just drive us into the ground and punish us. No, now he's a loving father who welcomes his children into his presence. The veil being torn, the tabernacle of God with man, his presence with us. That, that is, to me, that is far more important than a golden street or a pearly gate. The fact that I'm going to get to live out my days that will never end with my creator, the one who, who gave me life and gave me purpose. He says here, that I will be with him as a son. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. I want you to see this text. 1 John chapter 5. The same author of Revelation is the same one who wrote these short letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this is the same author who wrote the Gospel of John. So this, he's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's the one that, that outlived all of them. Remember, as he's receiving this vision, he's on the Isle of Patmos, probably somewhere 90 years old or older. So notice what that same John who wrote earlier in his life, look at what he says, 1 John 5, verse 4. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, let's take that part. There is this um, phrase that's thrown around a lot. I hear it a lot. Um, I've heard it in the news. I've heard it in a lot of places. And People with maybe good intentions or maybe bad intentions, they'll say this, well, aren't, aren't all people God's children? 
Right? Are, are we not all God's children? I've heard this many times when someone's trying to prove some point, maybe social justice or whatever. So we need to take care of one another because we're all God's children. Is that true? Have you ever, have you ever paused a minute and just say, wait a minute, is, is that actually true? Now, on the one hand, what they're saying is, maybe what they're trying to say, is that, yes, we are all God's creation. That's true. But when we say we're all God's children, which means God is our Father, the reality is, is no, not everyone is a child of God. The only way you can be a child of God is not just to be born physically into the world. That doesn't qualify you as being an adopted son or daughter. Just the fact that you were born into this world does not make you a son or a daughter of God. You must be reborn. You must come to that place where you surrender to Christ and you put faith in Him. And at that moment, you are reborn. Notice what John says. He says, for everyone who's been born of God, not born into the world, not just physically born, but reborn, well, guess what? Guess what? They overcome the world. So whatever pressure you're under now, whatever pain you're under, whatever valley you're walking through, you've got to understand that as a follower of Jesus, you will overcome. If you don't overcome, then God is a liar. His word cannot be trusted. But God says you will overcome. If you're facing cancer, you will overcome. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be healed of cancer. God may heal you. He can heal you. But ultimately, if you leave this life in Christ, you have overcome the world. As we've seen all through the book of Revelation, that it's clear that for everyone who's been born of God, overcomes the world. So you could say, if I am in Christ, then I am a conqueror in Christ, no matter what comes my way. Notice what he says next. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So what was the entry point into this place of victory and conquering? It is by faith. It is by faith believing that Jesus Christ died in your place. It is by faith believing that Jesus resurrected from the dead. It is by faith believing that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no other way of salvation. That is what faith is. And faith is what brings you from lostness to being born again. He says here, that you overcome the world, you have victory by your faith in Christ. And in verse 5, he sums it all up. Here it is. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Man, a lot. That's as clear as it can be. John says, you want, you want to have victory? You, you want to be able to conquer? You want to be able to overcome? That can only be found in Christ, in Christ alone. Go back to Revelation. So we will live forever as God's children in that place. We have overcome the world because God kept a promise to us. He gave us a promise at that moment we put our faith in Christ, and that promise was that we would overcome. This is the moment when all things are made new, that we, in fact, through his power, through his strength, we are overcoming the world. But then something happens in this text that's really odd. Now, remember, there's a voice from the throne speaking to John, telling John to write down these things that are faithful and true. Write these things down, John. Remember, all the way back when we started this journey out, we talked about how John had been set apart to write down the things that he would see and hear. But something odd happens in this text. We, we, we kind of depart from the description of the final state, and it's as though God is giving us a warning in real time that we might want to pay attention to. 
So instead of continuing to describe, he's going to come back to this. He's going to come back and describe this new Jerusalem. We'll see that next week. But right here in the middle of all of this, verse 8 just jumps off the page to me. Look at that, Look at that first word, but. So, so this voice coming from the throne, it could be God the Father, it could be Jesus Christ the righteous. We're not really told. This is a voice from the throne. It's a voice of authority. And he says to John, John, here's all the things of heaven. Here's what you can expect in the eternal state. Let my church know this. However, there are some who will never tabernacle with me. There are some who are not my sons and daughters. Now, this is the voice of God speaking in this moment. Listen to what he says. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, uh, those are the ones who refuse to follow Christ because of fear. They reject the gospel. They reject Christ because they're afraid. They're afraid of what people might think. They're afraid they might miss out on some fun. They're afraid that... Uh, you know, their family might disown them. They're afraid that uh, following Jesus may require them to give up too much, so they simply live their life in fear. So they're cowards. That's the Bible's word, not mine, so don't kill the messenger. The reality is, is God speaking here to John, saying, John, this group of people, cowards, who would not follow me because of fear, would not follow my son because of fear, uh, they, they are not my sons and daughters. They're just not. Notice what he says next. He gives us eight things here, eight things. He says, the cowardly are not my sons and daughters. The faithless, faithless. Those who deny Christ by the way they live and by the way they speak. They deny the reality. No matter what they claim, their lifestyle and, and what, what they give their life to denies that they believe in Christ by their conduct and by their speech. So they are faithless. When you look through the New Testament, you find this over and over again. People who are faithless. Judas was faithless. The, the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with, even though they saw the miracles, they were faithless because their lifestyle proved it, the way they lived their life. Those who were coming in contact with Christ but yet rejected him, they were faithless. Less. You see, if faith is the key that unlocks the door to eternity, if faith is the key that takes us from death unto life, then those who are without faith have not come out of death. So therefore, God says here to John and to us, those who have no faith, they may have religion, they may have 15 Bibles in their house, but if they don't have faith, they are lost. They're not adopted sons and daughters, period. Cowards, faithless. Look at this other one, detestable. Detestable. He, he says here, the detestable are not his sons and daughters. What is detestable? That word, the Greek word behind is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's used in the book of Romans to talk about idolatry. And, and so the idea is, is that people who have given their life to false gods, people who have given their life to money, people who have worshipped other things other than God, and therefore rejected Christ and rejected the gospel, God says, they are not my children, and they will not be in this place. So the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, look at this, the murderers. Murderers, malicious, savage killers who have no respect for human life at all. 
Let's take a look around us right now in our current culture. I have never lived in a day and age in which human life is counted so cheaply and so useless as it is today, right now. Every day that we pull up our news online or we watch it online or we open the newspaper, what are you inundated with? Murders. Not just murders, but vicious killings all over the place. Right here in our own community. What are we known for? What are we known for in this community? Look, folks, we're not, we're not known for a community where families are grown up healthy and, and everything's well. What are we known for? Google search, and you will find out that we're known for murders and killing and drug abuse and broken homes. The very things you don't want to be known about, known for is what we're known for. It's right in our face every day. You know, I'm driving up 95. I'm minding my own business. I ain't bothering nobody. I know that's terrible English, Wendy, but it'll be okay. I'm getting the look. No, I'm joking. I'm joking, guys. I'm just minding my own business. I'm driving up 95. I'm running the speed limit. I haven't cut anybody off. I've been in my lane now for about two or three miles. Some guy pulls up next to me, and he's obviously cussing me out for something because he's giving me gestures with one of his fingers that seems to indicate that he's upset with me. This guy's a nut job. I have no idea what he's upset about. But honestly, I'm afraid if he'd had a gun, he might have shot me, and I don't even know what I did. As far as I know, I've done nothing other than get on the highway and try to make it to my destination. This guy's losing his mind. Folks, we live in an age right now where people are just angry. They're just angry all the time. They don't even know what they're angry at. There's just something on the inside of them that's eating away at their soul. It's happening inside of marriages, relationships, families. We, we have some faithful people in this church who work within DSS in that world, and I won't go into it, but I had a conversation that of just how hard things are right now in our community. Broken homes, kids with no homes, kids, small children committing crimes that were unthinkable even 10 years ago. What is going on? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, and he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to Timothy, Timothy, there will be a day. In the last days, people's hearts will grow cold. That, that the love that they should have, that natural love that we should just simply have because we're human beings, will, will, will disappear. We, we see it. We see it in the abortion lobby. We see it in the taking of the life of the unborn. We see it, and I believe that that is spilling over in our society, and life is cheap. It doesn't mean anything anymore. God says that the malicious, savage killers, no matter what they say, no matter what they say, they will not be in his kingdom. Can a murderer come to faith in Christ? Yeah. Can a murderer receive Christ and be saved? Yes. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who live their life and tuck others' lives because life was cheap. Cowards, faithless, detestable murderers. Look at this one, sexual immorality. Just as equally so as everyone's angry, equally so, everybody's going down the path. It's just accepted now that there are no boundaries to sexuality. The, the, the boundaries that God placed in His Word for humanity as He created us, He says to us, live within these boundaries. If you get outside of them, you're going to pay a price. He says here, those who practice this, those who practice this, and I'm going to not go too far down this road because we have kids in our service with us today and I want to honor those parents because I know you're teaching your kids. But I, let me just say this. 
But in the New Testament, sexual immorality is kind of like an umbrella, and it includes a whole lot of things underneath that umbrella. Homosexuality. The whole same gender identity stuff that's going on right now. The Bible says there's two genders, only two, male and female. There is not 50. There will never be 50. If this planet goes on for another 10,000 years, there will still only be two genders, period. But here's what we see in our culture today. An outright denial of the created order. And as people go outside those boundaries, they prove the reality that they've never had faith at all. You cannot have your sexual immorality and follow Jesus. You can't have them both. So God says that there are people who are his children and there are people who are not. And those who are cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual immorality, sorcerers, sorcerers, maybe thinking like Lord of the Rings or something. What, what are you talking about, sorcerers? Those who utilize, get this, those who utilize and mix drugs with spirit worship, witchcraft, and magic. You might be, you might be shocked to hear this, but, but the, the sorcery, witchcraft, Satanism is growing at an astronomical pace right now. As a matter of fact, the largest gathering of Satanist, witchcraft, Wiccan followers just happened, I think, in, I think it was last week in Boston, Massachusetts, the largest gathering of people who practice these lifestyles and these religions gathered, and this was the first of its kind. Why did they gather? Well, just let me mention Salem witch trials. That's why they gathered in that particular area. Sorcery, he says, those who practice such things are not his children. Idolaters, those who commit idolatry, worshiping idols and images, money, sexuality, whatever it is, worshiping something. We have a, a world today that is worshiping a lot of things. Make no mistake about it. These claims that you're hearing on the news about what is true, that is a truth claim that is based in faith that you're supposed to express your faith in, right? It's, it's very much based in a religious kind of worldview. God says they're not my children. And finally, he says liars, those who habitually deceive others. So here in the middle of this text about heaven, what do we have God doing? Giving us a warning. Giving us a warning. He's got another one that's going to come in the last chapter. But for now, we have to understand that not all God's children, not what the world claims as being God's children, not all are his children. There's going to be a time where God makes all things new. I'm going to be part of that. Not because of my good works, but because of my faith in Christ. God has made his promises to me, and because of his very character, he cannot deny what he has said he will do. So, so this morning, as, as we close out, I want you to consider, I want you to consider that that pain that you carry around because of your loved ones that have passed on or who died in Christ, I want you to, I want you to celebrate and worship the fact that, worship the God who made it possible that they could go into a place where all things are new. But equally so, for those of you who have never put your faith in Christ, today's the day. Because just as God is going to make all things new there, He can make something new this morning. He can make you brand new this morning. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.